Hello and good morning. My name is Nicole Heller and this is Reboot 2030, the Democracy School's YouTube channel. My guest today is uh, Delton Jen, um, who will be kicking off uh, this uh, season's uh, Reboot Dialogues. Uh, Delton uh, is a civil engineer and a geohydrologist with a PhD from the University of Queensland. He has a combined experience in groundwater, water research impacts, geothermal energy, and climate policies that use digital tokens. He's also the founder of the Global Carbon Reward Initiative, the subject of today's dialogue. But Delton has arrived, so let me invite him in. Delton, good evening. I'm on your go. <laughs> It's definitely summer where you are. I can see you're sitting there in a t-shirt. Yeah, it's actually uh, seven o'clock at night, so it's still light outside. The sun's just setting. Delton, let me let me let me go straight in. Um, you have um, you have you say you've come up with a new theory. That that is a uh, obviously quite quite a statement to make. I mean, I believe people have hypotheses, people have all kinds, but theories are. You know they're there to be shot down in a way you know that's that's the way i think the way science works we kind of say here's a new theory and then everybody around is kind of all your peers are trying to kind of put, poke holes into it um now you say that um we need a new theory for carbon pricing and i believe you're kind of on the way of developing that theory could you in layman's terms explain what what you mean by that yes uh Economic theory and theory I've developed is not easily explained to the layperson uh, because economics in general is confusing. And it does take some reading to understand how economists price carbon in the first place. So rather than trying to explain it technically, it's probably best if I explain it or try to explain it uh, metaphorically or by analogy to make it more clear more quickly. So the way economists price carbon is that they want to optimize the economy for utility. So the objective is to um, quantify the economic damages of greenhouse gases and global warming into the future, and then raise the tax such that the, the damages are reducing but the tax isn't so high that we have too high of a tax. So there's a certain optimum there where uh, the costs and the benefits of the tax uh, are maximal for society. And that's why they target what they call the social cost of carbon with the carbon tax or something similar to a tax. And what I'm saying is that this theory assumes that global warming is a market failure that's like other market failures we've had. And what I argue is it's not a classical market failure. What I'm saying is we have a special problem where there are two optimizations we need to take care of. For the first one, the first optimization, optimization I just described, the carbon tax, as I said, it's to maximize utility in terms of GDP and production consumption. However, what I argue is that we need another point of view, another frame of reference that also puts a price on our ability to stabilize the biosphere and the climate system as a biophysical system. And the point, of view, the point I want to make is that that second 
price signal is not easy to understand. Various people have put forward ideas. But the proposal that I put forward is that this second price signal for uh, protecting our climate system has to have very explicit um, definition and a way to show how it's derived. And I derive it by looking at the symmetry of pricing. So the symmetry means sticks for tax, taxes and sticks for maximizing utility, but this reward for managing the system and finding or creating safety of the system with respect to the global carbon cycle, the climate and the biosphere. So in, in summary, this theory is about moving from a single objective to two objectives. The second objective requiring a reward to, as the price single and in introducing the second price signal, the reward, we're actually creating a parallel economy because we're creating the reward with a parallel currency. Let me just, in, in my very sort of, uh, sort of like um, amateurish understanding, try to kind of recap that, just to kind of see whether I get this correctly. So you're sort of saying we have uh, in our traditional sort of like mode of taxation, we kind of have to balance costs and benefits. So there's a cost to the economy of having to pay and, and to the consumer and having to pay tax. But that tax then is employed, invested into the economy and uh, into the greater good of society so that there's a benefit derived from that investment, from that tax. And for as long as the kind of the benefits the tax provides and the costs of that tax are kind of in balance, taxation is both, you know, sort of perceived to be fair, but it's also, you know, in economic terms, seen to be working. And on the, on the kind of, on the carbon side, we've been focusing so far, primarily on the sticks, on the cost of carbon, but not on the benefit side. So there isn't actually, if you like, a kind of a, a ecosystem evolving that would, in a way, parallel the kind of the, the kind of ecosystem of the formal economy. Is that is that roughly kind of the way you would look at it? You're touching on something here. Uh, in terms of human relationships and social agreements, yes. We're too focused on sticks and taxes, cap and trade and so on, and not enough on the carrots. So the kinds of carrots that we do have are typically subsidies or fiscal policies to spend more money, and they can be very helpful. An example is the Inflation Reduction Act in the United States. It's introducing more spending. So in a sense, that's carrots. However, what I'm arguing for is to formalise that with a specific monetary policy that's structural for the world economy and the way it's framed is to uh, manage the price of the reward so that we are able to incentivize enough carbon removal from the atmosphere, which will be very expensive, and enough conventional mitigation, particularly hard to abate sectors, so that we have some confidence that we can achieve a certain carbon budget that we hope will be relatively safe for humanity, the biosphere. And the world economy. No, 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 there's another aspect, and and I have it just vaguely in my head, but you have to explain to me very briefly once more. Uh, you've been doing a lot of research into carbon itself and the role carbon plays in the natural world, 
And in a way, I think part of what you're saying in your theory is, is that the way we're treating carbon at the moment doesn't reflect that place of carbon in the natural world and that you feel that this needs to be rectified, the system to work and to find equilibrium. Could you explain that? <laughs> yes, this is a very deep and complex problem. And I just advise our audience that what I'm putting forward is still a hypothesis. It hasn't been proven, but I feel that there's enough evidence that it possibly could be correct. And that is uh, our vision of the carbon cycle and the way we manage it is social. One advantage of carrots and sticks is that we know it can maximize cooperation, which is essential for, for major change. So that's the social perspective, but you're asking about the biophysical. And to explain quickly, we could look to ecosystems for inspiration because certain ecosystems with particular boundary conditions can actually achieve carbon neutrality. So as you would know, plants um, actually respire and photosynthesize, animals respire, fungi respire. So collectively, the biosphere or ecosystems, complex living organisms can achieve carbon neutrality when photosynthesis and respiration are actually in balance. Now, uh, we have examples of terrariums and the earth itself, which can be in quasi-balance. So the question is, uh, why is that the case? Why can these systems reach carbon neutrality and persist as living organisms for a long period of time, where if you look at our economy and if we view our economy as a superorganism, why is it that we're so out of balance? Why is our civilization acting like a giant heat engine, respiring, if you like, putting out so much greenhouse gases? Why aren't we able to control it? And what I put forward is the idea that just like ecosystems, we actually need two systems running in parallel, two mutual complementary systems. So in ecosystems, it's respiration photosynthesis, which are managed by specialized cells and organisms. And so too, I argue, we need two specialized economies to handle uh, production of goods and services as a heat engine and a parallel economy to take care of the carbon removal and the hard to abate mitigation. Except now, uh, moving on from that, that's that's a, that's a that's a really quite a, a fundamental. I mean, very few people I'm talking to are addressing the kind of the climate crisis. I mean, of course, there is a whole scientific community who does, but they don't really very often reach the kind of the public in the way we have this conversation now. So this is really quite interesting, and it's quite interesting to see that there are fundamental approaches that might lead to fundamental solutions. Now, one such fundamental system changing solution is the one you have developed. Um, and, you know, you're talking about a global carbon reward initiative, which is what you've been developing since 2013. And with embedded within that, a kind of rather kind of like interesting concept, one that's actually been used in a scientific novel as well, because it's so appealing. And this is the idea of a carbon currency. Now, before we go any further with this, I want you to kill off one kind of idea, because this is something that obviously could stop you in your tracks. Why is this not Bitcoin? 
Let's stop there. Let's sort of make a distinction between what you're doing and between sort of, you know, you know uh, sort of cryptocurrency. There are similarities. There are clearly you're using a, a technology that is compatible, but you're doing something very different. Maybe let's start with the differences there and then move to the more general idea of a global carbon reward. Yeah, sure. So let's talk about Bitcoin for a moment. Bitcoin, as you know, is really a private initiative. What it illustrates is that it is possible to introduce a new monetary system or a currency-like instrument very easily, quickly, and globally using new technologies through the internet. In this case, it's the blockchain. Now, um, there's a limitation of Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies, and that's the desire to achieve security without a trusted authority. And that requires proof of work or some other uh, algorithm or method that can lock down the network, such as uh, there's other variants, which I, I don't remember right now. But the point is... Sorry, when... just, to, just to get this clear, the, the, the kind of the, the thing you're talking about is a central bank, really, isn't it? You're talking about a, 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 an institution, either a national or a global or a regional, like the European Central Bank, that can actually really kind of anchor a currency and stabilize. That, that's what you're talking about, isn't it? Yes, correct. So in the policy, the currency or the carbon currency, it's not a crypto. Uh, it has been called carbon coin in the novel by Kim Stanley Robinson. Uh, which is a science fiction portrayal of the near-term future of global warming. He based the novel or the carbon coin on this policy, but there's just a little bit of confusion there. This is not a crypto. It would be managed by institutions and supported by central banks. So it doesn't have this quality of trying to be locked down uh, with algorithms or um, number crunching. So what it's going to be like is a bit more like maybe a regular currency where there's a ledger that's maintained by a trusted authority, but it'd be quite transparent. There would be records of everybody's mitigation effort. Now, uh, the point is that when you have a currency structured this way, um, it's possible to create a public policy. And that's the key point. Generally speaking, cryptocurrencies are not public policies. And some people have tried to innovate in the cryptocurrency space, blockchain space, to create green tokens, to try and rectify some market failures. Um, SolarCoin's an example, but there are probably many others. My argument is that those initiatives will struggle. They will struggle when our objective is a global crisis such as global warming because they don't really have the support of government and central banks. And ultimately we need that macroeconomic support to create a reliable price signal. So coming to the-, yeah. the let, me, let, me, let me lead on to, because I think there's another aspect to the, uh, the, the carbon currency, which is quite relevant here, um, which, which I find really quite interesting. And I'd like to say a little bit more about that as well. It's, I mean, currencies uh, are, by economic definition, by definition, stores of value. Now, what mm. this currency stores is carbon. And you're being quite specific how this is anchored in carbon, how much carbon is linked to one unit of currency in your case. Could you just say a little bit about that and maybe about the potential stabilizing impact of that anchoring as well? Yes, I think we should begin possibly by just going over the functions of money. 
medium exchange, store of value, unit of account. So the unit of account is one ton of CO2 equivalent mitigated for a hundred year duration. That's the standard, noting it's carbon that's mitigated and not emitted. The store of value is not about storing carbon. Store of value refers to its economic purchasing power. And that purchasing power or its exchange rate rather will be partially managed. Uh, we could discuss that. The third major um, function is medium of exchange. And what's notable about this carbon currency is that it's not a medium of exchange. So it's not legal tender and it won't compete with reserve currencies or national currencies. Now, um, some philosophers argue that there's a fourth function of money. I tend to agree. And that fourth function is a social agreement. So in this case, the social agreement is to manage or partially manage the exchange rate and purchasing power of the currency to achieve a climate goal, which is um, to assist our, our um, objective reaching the Paris goal. Now, what's interesting here is, is that, and, and that's the balance, sort of balancing mechanism I, I'm trying to get to here is, is Say we're kind of, you know, back in, the, in a kind of in a fictitious stone age and we decide that our, our currency are little stones and they're physical things, they're stones, but you only find them in certain places and there's a limit of them, only so many of them. So the fact that they are limited, um, they, they have an intrinsic value. If there was an unlimited number of those stones and everybody could just pick them up and there wouldn't be a store of value anymore. Of course, in, 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 in cryptocurrency, the, the limiting of the, the, the currency, be it bitcoins or whatever, is regulated by the private company that essentially kind of issues the currency. With money, like say pound sterling or dollars or euros, it's the job of the central bank to sort of manage the, the money supply. Now, what's interesting here is, is that because it's anchored in carbon, the more we produce, the less valuable that currency becomes. Isn't that correct? Yes. So it's actually a function of supply and demand. That's right. Uh, you're, you're alluding to the supply side of the supply-demand equation. And true, the supply of the currency will be governed by the rate of mitigation that's rewarded with the currency. So the synorage value of this new currency is issued as the reward to businesses, projects that mitigate. So However, that's... Sorry, go on, please. Yeah, sorry. So, however, the supply can also... Uh, be reduced by taking it out of supply, and that will happen whenever central banks purchase it. When they purchase it, they're taking it out of circulation. So that's the supply side. On the demand side, um, I just mentioned central banks, they can be buyers, buyers of last resort, but the private sector will also want to buy it. And uh, we, we could talk about how that demand function is managed. It, it's a little tricky to explain verbally without a graph, but um, do you want to go there now or? No, my point is, my point is there could never be the equivalent to quantitative easing uh, in, 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 in your carbon currency, because it's mm. not like with the actual money of a central bank, which can be printed on demand, where you can basically add extra money into the economy, to, which over the last 10 years in, in, in Europe and around the world has, has led to significant inflation because we've kept printing more and more money. 
uh, to basically sort of count all kinds of strains and stresses onto the economy. The last one was obviously was the pandemic, and then there was the war in Ukraine, and we kept printing money to kind of meet those demands, and we inflation was a direct result of that. Now, with the carbon currency, that quantitative easing isn't possible. Yes, there is still the buying and selling, which central banks do as well through government bonds and all the rest, but there isn't the quantitative easing aspect, and I find that a really, really interesting aspect. Now, if you take the... Um, if you take your carbon currency, it's embedded in a much more sophisticated ecosystem, which you, which you call the global carbon reward. So could you kind of build it out from this idea of a carbon currency and how that then basically kind of populates that ecosystem you're, you're talking about? Yes, I, I can do that. But I think we have to clarify the, the quantitative easing first, because our audience could be confused. So in the policy, there's this concept a monetary policy concept called carbon quantitative easing. Now, you're absolutely right. The carbon currency itself can't simply be created ad infinitum. It's only issued according to carbon that's mitigated and then rewarded. However, central banks can buy the carbon currency when necessary. And what do they use to buy the carbon currency? Well, they use fiat money, which they can create. They can create bank reserves from nothing to buy the carbon currency as an asset. So on the central bank balance sheet, they uh, purchase the carbon currencies, their asset, and then they issue more bank reserves as their debt. When that, those bank reserves go into circulation, that will enter the economy as debt-free money. So notable is that central banks, when they create money, bank reserves, they can create it debt-free, whereas commercial banks create money uh, as loans and as debt, which is quite a different process. So I just needed to clarify what carbon quantitative easing was. Uh, yes, so I, I can I understand that. And obviously within your kind of ecosystem, your carbon quantitative easing, which is kind of different from the kind of quantitative easing that central banks use for a number of reasons, but it is used to stabilize, you know, if you like to, to manage, to make sure that you don't get a massive volatility, which would may not be in the interest of, of the ecosystem. But, but of course, and that's, that's absolutely part of monetary policy and management. But um, the, the issue here is, is, is um, buying back, um, you know, um, Say, say, say money uh, or taking, you know, like the way central banks may well as well, do as well, uh, or, or kind of releasing more money for as long as you don't increase the overall pool of money available. It is within the kind of stabilizing mechanisms of, of the bank. And it's within that stabilizing range that you're talking. The interesting thing, of course, also is as your system builds up, you know, you're not gonna you're not gonna release every single kind of carbon, you know, like like you know, like the, the entire carbon on the planet in one swoop onto the market. So this presumably is going to be released in trenches and there's until the actual entire ecosystem is, has grown to its fullest extent that may well take some time. So there is a kind of a time when we're kind of operating below capacity, if you like, where none of these kind of limits I'm talking about kick in. But it's when you get to a fully fledged, fully operational, fully extended carbon economy, at that point, it's really our productive and our consumptive behavior that determines how big a pool of carbon and ultimately carbon currency there will be. And, and they're, they're, that's an interesting stabilizing mechanism in itself. Yes, it's a very long-term process. And the central banks with the, their purchases of this currency, it's to set a floor price, not so much to manage the volatility, but to set a minimum exchange rate for the carbon currency. So it's rising 
to uh, ensure the currency is an investment and is high enough to achieve the mitigation rates we need. So um, I, I think for the audience, if they're interested, they should go to the website globalcarbonreward.org and there are presentations which explain the, the floor price. Um, it does need a graph really to explain it properly. Absolutely, and also for the, uh, the viewer's convenience, if you sent me after the show, if you sent me any link that you think is relevant, I will stick it under the video here as well. So people can just go and click under the link uh, on the link under the video and, and then they'll have this information as well in case they didn't manage to take it down now. Let's Perfect. let's 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 build it out. So there is this, you know, carbon currency, which is kind of at the at the center of a carbon economy. Now, um, how, how is this carbon economy regulated? What, what are the structures? What is this and how does this uh, global carbon reward come into it? Sure. The, the concept here with the reward issued as a currency is in effect to create a parallel economy. This parallel economy has its own rules, a rule book, and it's quite comprehensive. So there's a rule for rewarding cleaner energy production, that's to replace fossil fuels. There's a reward for cleaner businesses to decarbonize all sectors of the economy, particularly hard to obey. And very important is a third rule for carbon removal. Now, those three rules are there to create opportunities for our new institution to incentivize industry to make a rapid transition to net zero according to, at the pace that we want, we want to set. Now, uh, that deals with the quanta of carbon. But there are three more rules that deal with the quality of the carbon. Uh, the, the fourth rule is for energy liability. The fifth rule is for community well-being, and the sixth rule is for ecological health. So these last three rules, they are there as secondary price signals to favour those projects that can produce co-benefits and to disincentivize those projects that are creating harms. Because at the end of the day, I think we'd have to all agree that decarbonizing the world economy is going to involve innumerable trade-offs. You know, you can't transition out of fossil fuels or go to net zero without causing some pain. And uh, we wanna try and minimize that pain. And that's really the challenge and, and the secondary price signals. Let me just at this point, before we go deeper into it, um, um, kind of make this parallel back to the kind of the uh, the real economy or the kind of our market economy as we know it. Um, you know, when, when 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 you start talking about regulation in the real economy, you know, you know, half the kind of population or maybe even possibly even more, I don't know, uh, would say, oh, you know, regulation is great. It protects work. It does this. That. And the other half would say, oh, no, 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 no. We want we believe in free markets. Stop all this regulating. You know, the market regulates itself. And so in, in a way, you can distinguish between what you might call economic laws, which are kind of, if you like, the kind of intrinsic behavior of the market and regulation that in some ways kind of try to tame the beast. And I think that distinction is quite an important one because that's where you kind of decide whether this is an overly regulated market or whether this is an under-regulated market because you distinguish between market behavior and the regulation that sits on top of that or underpins it, whatever you want to look at it. Now, 
um, on the on the carbon economy side, surely those two exist as well. And uh, and I think it's quite important, especially to kind of to to win over those neoliberals, which may need to be won over, you know, for this to actually happen in the medium term, uh, to explain to them that this isn't just all socialism. This isn't about a command economy, but that there are market principles underpinning that as well. And maybe when you kind of talk about your carbon economy and the, the global carbon report, maybe make that distinction quite explicitly so that we know where on the scale we are in terms of regulation or, uh, you know, not yet. Sure, uh, this is a really interesting point. First of all, I would have to say we need regulations. You, you know, there's a lot of harm being done in the world because of unregulated capitalism. Now, um, I'm not here to propose that we introduce stronger and stronger regulations, whether they're needed or not, because I'm explaining this particular policy, which will complement regulations and other kinds of sticks. So what I argue is that this policy won't be successful on its own, but the idea is that we introduce the global carbon reward as a positive incentive to finance and fund radical decarbonisation and research and development, but it's going to work in synergy with all the sticks. So incrementally, as we introduce more carrots, it will help transition society into a new mindset where businesses and individuals, citizens and politicians, through the reward, it will become more politically acceptable to be enthusiastic about climate mitigation. And okay, let, me, let, me, let me come in there once more. So there's two types of, if you like, interventions. They are the kind of interventions that you might call um, restrictions in, in however you want to, you know, don't do this, don't do that, do less of this, do less of that. Uh, and then there are kind of, if you like, incentives that would say, well, if you do this or indeed subsidies, if you do that, then you get this. Or if you do that, then you get that. And indeed, you know, all our governments, left or right, are quite happy to use incentives to see the economies grow. They are not necessarily as keen on the restrictions and on the restrictive regulations. And what you're sort of saying is the global carbon reward is actually to some extent more on the on the reward side, on the kind of on, on the incentive side, given that the economy moves in a certain direction. So it's incentivizing directionally towards a sustainable low carbon or negative carbon economy. And if, if the economy as a whole moves that way, then your system provides the incentives for us to get there quicker. Is that a way of putting it? Yes. In fact, I would go even more specific and say it's absolutely a market policy and it fits in with other market policies in a framing I call the carbon pricing matrix. So the carbon pricing matrix explicitly points out that uh, we actually should be looking at four major types of market pricing. One is tax, the other is cap and trade, the third is a subsidy, and the fourth, I argue, is this reward. And my point is theoretically that the reward, as far as I understand it, is the missing link to being able to, to manage the systemic risks associated with the anthropogenic carbon balance. Uh, the reason I say it's systemic is because it has scalability macroeconomically and microeconomically, and it also, um, I believe, will accelerate cooperation in a very significant way. Uh, one reason is because the private sector can look to the reward, know that it has a floor price which is reliable for decades into the future. Thus, they can borrow and invest heavily in high capex projects, 
which is what we will need. If we're to transition quickly out of fossil fuels, noting that we, we can't completely transition out because we, we are dependent on oil to a certain extent, but keeping that in mind, we're going to have to invest in very large capex projects for electricity generation and consumption, and also to, to uh, power those new technologies, which are going to have to suck greenhouse gases out of the atmosphere somehow, whether it's natural methods and engineered methods or hybrid methods. So uh, I, I might've just gone off a bit of a tangent there, Nick, Nico, but maybe you can bring me back with another question. Um, yeah, so, so let's just, um, so, so basically what we're sort of saying, building it out, so we're sort of saying that the core of your system sits a, 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 a sort of a, a carbon economy, a, a market, a, you know, a, a natural market that's as natural as the kind of the money market on the other side of it. Um, and that in some ways, there's no reason why it should display behaviors that would be fundamentally different in terms of market behavior. Um, except, of course, that it's different in the sense that it's anchored differently. It's got carbon at its core, uh, and it's 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 built out from there. It also means that there's a limited supply of carbon, so the currency has a sort of a, 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 a sort of an outer limit of how far you can extend the currency. And indeed, uh, as we kind of like reduce carbon in the atmosphere, the currency is going to shrink. At some point, that market might be quite small again. Um, but at this point, it's probably going to mushroom. That's what we would expect. And so we have this market which potentially offers great opportunity also to profit, um, you know, for, for investment funds, for banks, for all, anybody who wants to trade in, in, in carbon can basically then use carbon currency to do that. Uh, so, but on the other hand, then we come to this, um, people for good behavior as a reward, they would get carbon currency, they would be paid in carbon currency. Isn't that, isn't that correct? Is that not what, part of your scheme? Yes, uh, sentiments you're sharing, I agree with. I think that the carbon currency will interface very nicely with the global financial system. It could be traded through the existing foreign exchange currency markets. And because it is an investable currency with this lower bound, this floor price, it has reduced sovereign risk and it's going to be backed by the world's major central banks. So this is a kind of structural macroeconomic reform that um, actually surprisingly, will divest the cost into the private sector primarily, which is counterintuitive because if we hear about carbon quantitative easing and backing by central banks, we think immediately monetary expansion, but it won't work that way because it's simply with the banks offering that guarantee and a rising exchange rate that's programmed, it becomes quite an attractive investment based on its perceived capital gain, its yield. And so um, it's the ideal negative feedback on our emissions. It's, it's ideal, I think, because it's got the scalability on the demand side and through the internet and the, re the reward rules and the way that we would apply individualized service agreements, service level agreements for all participants, we can micromanage the market and macroeconomically manage the exchange rate at the same time. Um yeah, yeah, no, so that, so, um, but um, what, what, what it does, in, in a way, is what, you know, what investors really like, and that is a liquid market, you know, a market that you can invest in, but you can also withdraw your investment uh, whenever you, it suits you. So we have a liquid market, and in addition, you will have, especially as, you know, as we 
take carbon out of the atmosphere in the longer term, you have a market with the actual, you know, unit of, you know, uh, you know, uh, of, of value increases because obviously if the investment is there and if the carbon kind of goes down, then, you know, it, 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 there, there's an there's element of deflation. Um, so, so that's, uh, that that's a very interesting so from an investment point of view uh, it, it's it's potentially i mean for anybody who wants to make money that would be an extra an extra out there that's great but how would that be of any use to the general public uh, like to a, a a democracy like who wants to reduce its its, its carbon footprint uh, or indeed to say a company that kind of says yeah but we consider carbon credits as cumbersome bureaucratic this and the other and if only there was such a thing as a carbon currency we'd be much more proactive about this so how does that liquid market how is that of benefit to say industry and also to benefit the, to the consumer i think i'll start with the consumer Okay, so for the consumer and actually for all actors in the marketplace, participation in the policy is always voluntary. Nobody's forced to trade it or to earn the reward. So the reason people will participate, businesses and citizens, is because they'll be attracted to the profit opportunity and the fact that that profit opportunity will synergy with their concern for the environment. So getting down to details, mum and dad investors can buy the currency to invest in it. Pension funds can do likewise. And actually for pension funds, it's a great idea because it'll offer a long-term return, which is what pension funds need. Plus it's, it's ensuring that the future isn't going to be a catastrophe. And that's also important for pension funds because they have to think long-term. Now, um, at another level for businesses, the point here is that Carbon mitigation and the accounting for carbon, doesn't matter what standard you're using, is always complex, time-consuming, and highly, a bit expensive administratively. Plus, you need policing. Those challenges will never go away. Those are the inherent challenges of any carbon market, including the carbon reward. So we should ask ourselves a question, why would a company put itself through all the pain of monitoring their emissions and doing all the reporting? And the answer is quite simple. The price. There's a price point at which a company will consider it, and if it's not high enough, they won't participate. So it's market-based theory. If if not enough businesses are participating, it simply means the exchange rate and the reward isn't high enough. So we'd have to increase it until we get the right response. And so it's it's a feedback mechanism. So that answers the question of uh, scalability. But for businesses, what they will do is if they're committed to mitigating, they will have to agree to their service level agreement and these will be tailored for each industry. So for example, if we're looking at fossil fuel companies, they're quite particular in, in the way they do their business. So for example, you might have an oil company wanting to drill in the Congo basin in the middle of the rainforest. The, the country, the Congo Republic, it, it might want that, activity, it knows there's damage to the environment, but they, they're looking for foreign uh, income. They're looking for hard currency income so they can build their economy. So what we will do is with this particular currency, we can actually offer them an asset exchange where we literally uh, invite them or we uh, bid for their license, their mining license, say, look, we will offer you enough carbon currency that 
you can realize the profit that you would have made in extraction and selling the uh, fossil fuels. So if, if they're willing to exchange their license for carbon currency, then they can enter the policy. Now, the point here is that we also would require that they take most of that carbon currency and reinvest it in renewable energy and sustainable energy projects uh, for those developing countries. So that way, they do end up with an asset exchange. They're exchanging their fossil fuels for renewable energy assets, which they will own and operate. In this way, uh, the, the nation state is receiving the investment money they need to build their economy, but they're not encumbered with the legacy of fossil fuel extraction and pollution and greenhouse. Okay, let me just, just just make sure that I really got this correctly. So there's a small elite within the Congolese kind of establishment who will profit yes. handsomely from drilling because obviously the country as a whole won't see a penny of this. It's a small corrupt elite at the very top who basically wants to cream off uh, those profits. Fair enough, that's, that's how the world seems to be right now. But you could, with the carbon currency, you could engage with this and you could say, well, okay, um, these you know, 15, 20, 25 corrupt individuals at the top, instead of having to do the drilling and kind of selling themselves to Shell, Royal Dutch or to whatever, um, for, you know, to do the drilling for them, um, they can just shortcut that. And basically a audited business plan will suffice to basically give them the profits that that business plan projects. So without actually any drilling, with the oil staying in the ground, and they get the money directly. Um, that seems a good proposition for these guys. And then you said the same, but it would be linked to certain investment types. So they would have to invest in regenerative kind of industries, be that kind of rebuilding the rainforest, or be that kind of creating sustainable employment or education or whatever. So that kind of that would be would be the thing. And presumably, some of it they could just pocket because that's what they want to do anyway. So. <laughs> You know, uh, so that that's I, I get that. Now, here's a question, two questions. Question number one, which kind of I, I'll start with question number two, because question number one kind of broadens it out again. Question number two, um, we just had COP27 mm. in, in Egypt, and there was a kind of a decision to set up a loss and damage fund. The, the US, which promised billions, has now just decided to give less than one billion, like a, a fraction of what they'd actually promised, just weeks prior to that in, in Egypt, they all of a sudden, you know, it's a political process, of course, and nobody is to blame, but, you know, it's a fraction of what they promised. So that loss of damage fund is likely to be totally under underfunded, a bit like the UN as a whole as well. Um, so, but anyway, there is a loss of damage fund idea and a commitment globally for this fund. Um, why is that loss of damage fund? I mean, would you suggest that that loss of damage fund should be just Dealing in crypto, uh, sorry, not crypto, in, in carbon currency. You know, why, 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 why introduce actual dollars or euros into the loss of damage fund when you could use, you know, carbon currency to start with? Wouldn't that be a launch pad for your scheme? Um, I'll just make a, a statement for the benefit of people who are watching. First of all, I, I wouldn't refer to the leaders of nation states or companies as being just totally corrupt. But there's always corruption everywhere you go. But I think it's just a bit disrespectful, but going, coming now and speaking about the um, loss and damage, I will be explicit. The policy does not address loss and damage. And uh, because it has a particular objective, which has to be explicit and cogent. So 
in, in economics, there is a concept or principle called the Tinbergen rule. And that rule says for every objective, you need an instrument in market theory. So we have established objective, it's to achieve a safe carbon balance in terms of quantity and quality. But that objective is not the same as loss and damage. Now, the issue with loss and damage, I'll talk about it a little bit. I'm not a loss and damage expert, but um, I could see problems for that initiative. So can I? I think you all can see the problems, just as like you alluded to, nation states are very reluctant to cough up hard money. Why is that? Because it's always difficult to balance your budget. They have to find the money somewhere and there's always competition for, for spending. And it's politically difficult to spend a lot of money on other countries. This is why moving to a currency and a monetary backed, a monetary policy that backs the floor price is a much more dynamic way to fund a very expensive problem such that we don't fall into the trap of debating and arguing over how to spend the budget of a government, which it will always be problematic. You can't solve that problem. It's a forever problem. So uh, loss and damage, my prediction, it's going to be a painful experience and drawn out over the long term, much like the, the Green Climate Fund. They haven't raised the, the total 100 billion per year that they were promising. And a significant proportion of what they have raised is actually loans. And the Green Climate Fund, a certain proportion, I, I'm not sure what it is, it could be about 20 or 30% is actually loans. So it's not a grant. But that's a very important point, Nico, in that um, when it comes to climate mitigation, particularly removing carbon from the atmosphere, it's a cost. It doesn't necessarily generate profits. So you can't use the conventional capitalist model when mitigating climate change. We do need grants. And so in a sense, the carbon currency is filling that void by offering debt-free money as a grant funded through monetary policy and um, what they, you might call Kosian bargaining over the currency. Actually, in fact, if you don't, let me say one more thing that's technical for those people who are interested in, in economic theory. People who are listening may have heard of cap and trade. Technically speaking, I believe this policy is really mitigate the trade. So it's Kosian bargaining with the carbon currency where we're using the floor price to target um, an objective and then the currency is traded to achieve a Pareto optimum. Let me, uh, okay, uh, so uh, first of all, about the, um, the, 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 the corruption, I would agree with you to make that as a general statement would be problematic, but in the case of the Congo, I'm very happy to stick to that statement. Uh, so I, I totally agree, not all politicians are corrupt, but those who are, you know, we should point them out and we should call a spade a spade, because I think this is the point we are at in, in our human evolution. And if we don't call politicians out, for what they are. If they're good, then we call them out for being good. If they're being corrupt, then we call them out for being corrupt. But if we don't provide that kind of accountability function as people, and also in my case, as somebody who runs the democracy school, then I think we're falling short of our own uh, ambitions and our own ethical standards. Now that's just, but I agree with you to generalize that statement would be wholly wrong. I hope that wasn't picked up that way. Now, the, the, the second point is, is I still don't fully understand why I can see that it may well be the right way to go about to have a parallel economy, a carbon economy is parallel, and at the core of it, a parallel currency, the carbon currency. But just as a kind of a thought experiment, and I'm sure you've thought about this, and I'm sure there's like 
un, like hurdles that one wouldn't be able to take. But as a thought experiment, um, if this was an ideal world, why don't we tie carbon to dollar or why don't we tie it to euro and then build the kind of regulatory frameworks that would carry that? Why, you know, like because then we would anchor our actual real world currencies in carbon the way that we do this now with the alternative currency. Why do we have to have a separate carbon currency? whatever that carbon currency then is called, whether it's called carbon coin or whether you have another kind of name for it, um, you know, why do we have to have that parallel economy? It may well be the way to go because there may be such huge resistance to tie it to a dollar or to a euro that it would never happen, that the initial step would be too great. But leaving that aside, purely from an economic of kind of a, a sort of a, a systems point of view, would that but not be a great simplification and a great help? Um, I'm not entirely sure what your question is, but I'll try and explain the thinking behind the parallel economy. No, let me so, let me be more specific. At the moment, you're hmm. saying how many tons is linked to one unit of carbon? Yes, the unit of account is one ton of CO2 equivalent that's been mitigated for at least a hundred year duration or for a hundred so, years. So why can't we make a similar equation for dollars so that a hundred tons of carbon are equivalent to one dollar or whatever it might be? And think, leave the, the kind of, if you like, the money supply linked in that way. In the same way you get pegged currencies, like in South Latin America, they would peg against the dollar and it would run in, in sync. And why don't we peg the dollar or the euro against carbon? Wouldn't that, to, to a large extent, if you like, I mean, it's impossible to, I know, I mean, I'm not saying that this is politically feasible, but just in terms of economics, wouldn't that do the same job, the same trick? Well, in fact, the policy does do what, you're suggesting it's just that it's not a hard peg it's um a partial peg because it's just placing a lower bound on the exchange rate if it were fully pegged we would fix the exchange rate it could be rising it could be crawling but it would be definite but it's not definite it's just the lower bound uh, and then the 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 exchange rate can uh, achieve whatever supply demand creates. So um, I think the question you have actually is addressed by the policy. It is relating the value of fiat money to carbon, in effect, at a global level. However, it's just different to the gold standard. The gold standard was much simpler because the gold standard was simply the desire to equate the value of uh, one ounce of gold to a certain number of US dollars. I think it was 35 US dollars or 37, 35, uh, around the time of Bretton Woods. So that kind of physical standard uh, is a good analogy actually for what we're discussing here, except there's a big difference in that when we're mitigating greenhouse gases, it's much more sophisticated of a problem and the exchange rate mechanism has to be much more sophisticated because it's not fixed. It's actually part of a market mechanism to resolve a market failure. Whereas gold as a standard wasn't trying to address a market failure. It had a much simpler function, which was to set a purchasing power, an agreement over store of value. So that's the distinction. This um, currency type we're discussing is very dynamic and it's essentially to resolve a market failure that is highly dynamic. Now, now let's move on. Um, this is a huge idea. And, and um, as you probably by now know, I'm a 
big fan of yours and I'm a big fan of uh, of the idea I think this is you know probably one of the one of the kind of really very significant uh, sort of inventions or visions of the early 21st century that may well shape uh, things uh, in years to come but because it's so big where do you start where do you start with an idea that big and I'm saying this also because I'm sure there's other viewers out there who have big ideas but who have not had the stamina the vision the maybe also the kind of the ego. I don't know what it takes. You started in 2013, and we're now in 2022. We're like, you know, we're nine years down the line. And um, and here we are still discussing this. You're still justifying yourself, having to talk to people like me, questioning you. And you must be thinking, Jesus, I've been, you know, I've been answering these questions five years ago, and you can still keep asking them. Um, so, so this must be quite frustrating for you. Um, and um, and I just you've just been on a, on a world tour. You have just been to Colombia, to North America, and then also to Hong Kong. Interesting countries, by the way. I mean, you wouldn't be. I mean, Colombia, Hong Kong wouldn't be my first choice for a tour of this kind. And so it's going to be interesting to see why, why you pick these kinds of locations. But you've been to Colombia, North America, I believe the U.S. West Coast and East Coast, and you've also been to 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 Hong Kong. Um, What's the response you get? Do you get people asking the same stupid questions I'm asking? Do you find people being very receptive to the idea? What's your kind of assessment? Well, I don't think the questions are stupid at all. Uh, the, the experience to me basically is, has been to explain the policy very concisely in a short amount of time. Typically, when you're speaking, you only get 10 minutes. <clears throat> so uh, the perception has been positive. I was invited to speak in Colombia by people who organized the Sustainable Blockchain Summit. So that's a, a certain niche of people who are working on sustainability through blockchains. In, in the United States, I toured Calif uh, the area around San Francisco, really. I spoke at Verge and SOCAP, and the response was very positive. I received a lot of private comments that they were inspired. Actually, that was a common statement. I, I'm really surprised people coming up to me saying, Dalton, I was inspired by your proposal. And I think what that means is that people are looking for structural resolutions to the climate crisis because more and more people are realising that all of these policies we've been discussing at COP26 in particular and 27, mainly 26 actually, um, they sound good on the surface because they talk about the trillions that are under management and so on, but it doesn't actually deliver. You know, you can it look at all. It can't deliver. It can't deliver. It's just, it's just hot air. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So, the kind of we're kind of at a crossroads for humanity. A time when there are scholars and intellectuals like yourself and various others on the internet, in particular, who are discussing the relationship between money, uh, economic growth, energy consumption, and greenhouse emissions, and our long-term sustainability. There's a growing sense that there's a structural problem that we can't continue to grow the economy as a way to uh, maintain societal order. We need a new paradigm. And hence, the reason I persevere with this is because I see the potential in this approach that appears to resolve not just the practicalities, the policy and finance, but also the theoretical and philosophical conundrums. Because I have a training in engineering and engineers do quite a lot of theoretical training. Um, and I suppose my personal um, ambition, if you like, is to try and resolve these theoretical problems because 
I, I believe once you solve the theoretical problems, you have a philosophy. And then if it stacks up against the scientific method, if it can appear overly reductionist to some people, but nonetheless, if it makes sense thermodynamically, physically, and politically, socially, legally, financially, then you have a, uh, an opportunity to do something. Well, I think, now, I think the important thing here is I think theory does two things. For an activist like yourself, like myself, it provides us with fuel. And I don't mean with fuel that radiates out, but fuel that radiates in. Because you must be asking yourself, like every second day, am I on to something really great here or am I wasting my time? And to have a solid theory kind of really provides that fuel for you to go on. And the same, obviously, in, in some ways, that's for me as well and other people who are kind of having a long-term agenda. And of course, the other thing is it provides you with a compass. You know, it doesn't give you a kind of like at a, at a kind of a tactical level, a, 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 an answer to every question, but it does give you a direction and it kind of in a way makes it far less likely that you'll be corrupted or that you'll be pulled in water because you have this, you have this kind of theory that, that you're kind of guarding. So I think, yes, absolutely. I think that is a really important message to any kind of activist that you really need to kind of, in a way, being a radical means to go to the roots of the problem. And I think that's very much what you've been doing. Yes, that's what I've been trying to do. And I would be honest with you um, that about five years ago, I was in a situation where I wasn't sure if I had a theory and I wasn't sure if the policy would really make sense. So for me personally, it was a big risk to invest so much time in, in, in this project. But fortunately, uh, the past few years have been positive for myself personally because I'm gaining more and more confidence in the theoretical framework. It's not yet proven though, um, you know, in science, physics, the natural sciences and mathematics, there's the notion of a proof and economists also like their proofs. Time will tell whether this will actually deliver a proof. I hope it does. Actually, you know, investors like to see proof too. And so this gets, gets me on to the next point. You need to generate some proof. You need to kind of lift this onto the next, onto the next level. Um, and that will require some funding of sorts. You can't just do it all on the never, never. Uh, where, where are you in this process? Uh, have you started fundraising? Where do you take it from here? So the theory of change for this policy and project uh, is based on the idea that we can't convince all the economists and policymakers in the world with a theory, you know, that that's an impossibility. So the goal here is to raise enough money to do a proof of concept of the policy and then publish the results, which will be reports and video recorded interviews of people who are excellent examples of decision makers in the economy. So captains of industry, business leaders, their investors, we role play the policy and then interview them to get their feedback on how the policy would affect their decisions. Similarly with stakeholders, citizens, ecologists, energy experts. So we will collect the feedback from the experts and combine that with economic assessments. So it's quite theoretical and role-playing, but it's enough information to publish and to create a discussion. The idea is that once we raise the money for that, we estimate it's somewhere between five and $10 million, that will attract a few countries to actually pilot the policy. Now, um if, if, you know, if a city um, or a region wants to have a new museum, 
they would go out and try to raise some funding. There may be one or two individuals out there who could actually bankroll it, but they want something in return and not just a little plague at the door. So we end up calling them the Guggenheim Museum and uh, whatever. Um, uh, and so the question is, what kind of benefits can you offer to an early stage investor? I mean, investor in a kind of a charitable way, but still putting money into something that is an investment in mankind. Um, could this be then uh, whatever the, whatever, you know, uh, the, that the currency is named after that that person so that we have the, um, you know, the Biden or that we have the <laughs> whatever, you know? Uh, would, you, would you be willing to kind of really offer a platform to a major investor who says, yeah, let's do that. I can afford five, 10 million to make this happen, but I want to have, basically, I want to be like part of history. I want this to be the Biden currency or the whatever. So the, the, the Hello currency or the Chen currency, you know, whoever puts yeah. the money in. But would you be happy to go that far or what, what is your kind of philosophy here? Uh, Nico, we haven't really considered that uh, because we assumed that the donors, be they philanthropists or foundations will simply donate because they want to see structural change to the economy and a resolution to the crisis. But if you have $10 million to give us, Nico, we could call it the Nico currency. So you would be happy to do that. Yeah, I think that's a really important thing because I don't know of a single museum, you know, you have the whatever such and such room and you have the, the such and such extension and you have, you know, uh, and, and even like, you know, you know, like, you know, uh, university kind of like faculties are named after, you know, after wealthy. So so it, it, this to me seems to be the, the way to go. And, uh, and the question is, because I mean, who? would not want to have a currency named after him or herself, honestly. I mean, especially given the scope of this initiative, this could be as big as the, the Fords or the kind of the Guggenheims or the whatever of this world. So um, so, so you would consider that as a thing. Now, uh, last last but not least, of course, uh, one brain can crack all the, 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 the challenges and all the issues. Question, what kind of partnerships? I mean, who, who does the need to be on board for this to become a balanced kind of initiative and for a successful uh, initiative that can be scaled? So what kind of partners are you looking for to take this forward as a consortium? Yes, we, we do need strategic partners. So the strategic partners are essentially the, the investors that we just discussed. And it will be the captains of industry, the uh, executives of those businesses that want to be part of the demonstration, the proof of concept, the role-playing interviews. And uh, ideally, one, two or three government representatives. So for example, hypothetically, it'd be wonderful if the state government of California were to step in to be a partner. Another example would be a, a country from Africa or Latin America or Asia, uh, probably not a superpower because that gets too complex, but a, a, a small developed country or a developing country, and then institutions and NGOs. So uh, we just need some uh, scientists, we need some legal advice and uh, these partners for the demonstration. One last question here on the, on, on, on the fundraising side. Um, would you have a problem if it's called the Exxon or if it's called the Shell? I'm just saying because some companies might have a heightened interest in this happening because it could really be good for them. And so the question is, if there was the Shell or the Exxon, uh, would that be? Would you have ethical issues with that, or would you be happy to roll with that? 
Uh, actually, Nico, when I said that we could call the currency the Nico, I was half joking, actually, because at the end of the day, if the policy is implemented, uh, we wouldn't be able to decide the name of the currency, be named by an institution and central bankers and whomever. And they will probably, I'm guessing they'll call it the carbon currency. They might come up with a different name. Um, but if, if we had major investors from fossil fuel companies, could we accept their money? Whew, you know, that's a hard one. It depends how, uh, if, if there are no other investors or donors or philanthropists in the queue and we couldn't raise the money otherwise, we would have, probably have to take it from fossil fuel companies. But I hope we don't have to do that because um, for better or for worse, I think we would lose the trust of a lot of people if we, we took money from fossil fuel companies. That's not because I think they're inherently bad. It's just that the politics today, uh, we have to have some governance that keeps the integrity of the policy development re at a reasonably high level of trust and regard. I mean, how can you introduce a new international policy if, if it's believed to be corrupted from the very beginning? Um, so I think logic dictates we'd try to refuse that money as long as we can. Okay. So, um... Basically, what you said is saying, ideally not the Shell or the Exxon, <laughs> um, but if if you know if necessary, that that you would as a fallback, you would not totally exclude them. Uh, yes, that's I would definitely include them. I would definitely include them in the actual proof of concept. It'd be great to have executives from these companies being interviewed to see how they respond to the policy. Because I, I think somebody like, I mean, I, I obviously I have the, 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 the very much the same reservations you have when it comes to fossil fuel companies. Um, but I know from my business school days and contacts we had back then, 25 years ago, um, that there is a kind of a kind of a vibrant community within the likes of Shell that are very techy, very engineering based, and they would probably love that kind of concept because to them that doesn't look like something that's based on restrictions and that's using market mechanisms to bring about positive change. And that's something I think these companies understand, even though we may or may not like what they do. But that's just that's a sort of a separate separate issue. The other thing is, of course, um, calling experimental currency the Shell or the Exxon doesn't mean that the final currency is called that. That'll be a negotiation then between your key sponsor and whoever then kind of takes it to the next level. But there may well be a way of unlocking this and allowing them to use it in their PR materials and allow mm -hmm. them for this kind of, you know, pilot phase to call it whatever it is, you know, whatever the company is. Um, and to, to use that as, as, as a way of kind of really kind of positioning some, themselves at the core of this initiative. So that's uh, that's that. So finally, um, the idea of Reboot is, is that we have a sort of roughly speaking a one dialogue a year, sort of a catch up like the way we had today. So what I would love to do is sort of kind of catch up with you in a year's, roughly in a year's time, could be a bit earlier, a bit later, but it, that's roughly the cycle. It also depends on what happens in your life, of course. If there's a major announcement to be made, then of course, I'd love to be one of the first one to be able to kind of to, to, to make that or be, be part of that announcement. But um, so, so, so are you happy to come back, say roughly in a year's time, all things being equal and no other changes happening in a big way? I think it's a great idea, Nico. Definitely. Because it'll give us, it allows us to chronicle the kind of, what mm. is really a stony path that there's no, I mean, who knows where we are in the year's time. I mean, clearly, I believe you're not going to go away. And I, I'm pretty sure about that. So, you know, uh, a lot of people set themselves up and they're gone within three years, but not, mm. not Delp and Chen. Uh, very, very good. <laughs> I love that. Um, so, 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 yes. And the other thing is, is we also do reboot specials, which are mm. basically, it, it, 
pinpointing specific issues that come up in reboot dialogues. And we bring then, that's then like a round table concept. We bring like two or three people together to, to just look at a specific issue. So we could do a round table specifically on an economic issue like a reboot special together with you. And you could say, well, why don't we get this economist and then whatever. And we kind of focus just on that and insist on that. It's not really about your journey. It's not really about uh, the development of the global carbon reward. It's about a specific issue that you've been kind of struggling with. Are you happy to kind of like, if an opportunity like that arises to do a reboot special as well? Oh, absolutely. And actually, Nico, I'm coming to Europe in June and I might be staying for about two months. Okay. So where are you based? Are you based in Berlin? In Berlin? Oh, you're in Berlin. Yeah. Well, if you like, invite me to Berlin. We could do an interview there or I could give a presentation if you like. We, we, we can definitely, definitely kind of uh, try to do something like that. Um, I'm not really in the live presentation, live event business at the moment because we have never really kind of got back to that after after COVID. So we're still very much in the virtual uh, world. Um, but um, but I'm, I'm very happy to kind of like to pull some levers and see whether we can get you know get, you know get uh, get you in front of an audience. I'd love to see that. So we can we can talk about that definitely. Yes. Also, um, there's a great fan of yours, um, you know, who in fact put me on to you, um, uh, Yang Yin uh, uh, in, in, in Munich. He's an impact investor, uh, works uh, for media. Uh, you, you'll find him doing interviews with us as well, Reboot Dialogues. I'm absolutely sure that he would kind of try to get you sort of like fixed up in Munich as well. He's a great fan of yours. So um, I can, if, if, you do, if you are in direct contact with Yang Yin, uh, I'm happy to establish that contact as well. And he's extremely well networked. So he may actually be almost a better contact there than me uh, in the in the environmental world and at the kind of at, at the sort of intersection between finance and, and, and environmentalism. So he's, he's really, that's really what he does. Um, so idea. happy to kind of link you up with anybody I know in Europe. Uh, there's people in the UK I can link you up with. So we can have that conversation separately and I can help uh, you kind of get a bit of a roadshow going in Europe. Yes, fantastic. If anybody's watching, I'm speaking in London on the 7th of June at the EcoCity World Summit. And so my calendar's open. If anybody wants to invite me to speak and explain the policy or the theory behind the policy, uh, just contact me through Nico. Absolutely. Thank you very much. That's, that's really brilliant. Um, Delton, I think we've come to the end of our program. Thank you very much. I wish you a, a, a lovely evening. It's just morning here so um that's that's and you see this is so great that we can have this i mean this is before the pandemic yeah people did do video kind of chats like this but not as kind of as regular and, and it wasn't part of the fixture in the same way and it really does reduce carbon emissions doesn't it people don't do all that many kind of tours anymore they do much more online and i think that's actually a positive thing coming out of the pandemic really yeah i agree zoom and everything like that's been a tremendous boost for, for the work i do Absolutely. Delvin, thank you very much. Uh, do keep healthy. Uh, keep it up. I'm, I'm following it. And, uh, you know, all my, you know, I'm touching wood and, you know, I, you know, and as I said, if, if I do come across people that might be interested in, in, in funding, there's one or two people I have in mind and we have, might have to have a sort of separate conversation about this um, offline. Um, and, um, you know, that that might actually, I don't know, they, they would in theory be possible to fund it, but whether they want to is a different question, you know. Uh, but sometimes it helps to have a direct line into somebody who is potentially in a position to do that. You still have to twist their arm, but at least you kind of get in front of them. Yeah, terrific, Nico. Thank you so much for the interview. I really enjoyed it. Excellent. Delton, thank you very much. Have a good day, yeah? Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.